Beautiful music. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? Then sings my soul how great thou art. Oh God, we worship you. We know that you are great and that your greatness is unsearchable. And Father, we have tasted and seen that you are good. So we, your people, exult in you. We rejoice in you. We celebrate, Father, all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do in the days to come through Christ our Lord. Amen. Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, one of the great chapters of the Bible, verse 15, he said to them, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep With those who weep, I have found that it is easier, paradoxically, to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. What is it within us that when somebody is blessed or happy or doing well, we reduce the equation to a zero sum and say, well, if they're doing well, I must not be doing well. It's hard for us to be happy for others. In fact, a fascinating study I read early in the week by uh, Vicki Medvek. She said that bronze medalists are quantifiably happier than silver medalists in the Olympics. Now, how can that be? The silver medal is obviously better than the bronze medal. Why would a silver medal winner not be as happy as a bronze medal winner? Well, this was her explanation. She said, as she studied it, the silver medalists were focused on the gold and they realized they were just that close to winning the gold medal and winning the silver felt like a consolation prize. They just couldn't be happy with that. On the other hand, the bronze medal winners realized they were just that close to not even being on the platform. And so for them, it was just great to be there. And they were tremendously happy. And I read that early in the week, and then I watched it. Did you see it in our gymnastics this week when the, when the young women on the women's uh, United States gymnastics team in the team competition, they were so good that when they didn't win the gold, I sort of felt bad about it. You know, even though they won the silver medal. But when the the men, without a couple of their best performers, somehow managed to scratch and claw and get the bronze medal, we felt like world champions. It was amazing. And so what she studied, I think, is actually true. We've been thinking about the seven deadly sins. And I've said to you, these, these sins are deadly because, in a sense, when we choose these sins, we are choosing the way we die. The scripture says the soul that sins will die. The wages of sin is death. And something inside me, something inside you dies when we choose to sin. And on the whole, I can't think of a worse way to die than envy. Would you open your Bibles with me to First Samuel? We're going to be looking at chapters 18 and 23. The title of this message is Happy for You. You ever say that? I'm happy for you? Good for you? Do you always mean it when you say it? It's easy sometimes to resent the successes of others. And I want you to see a father and son who respond to God's blessing in the life of the same person in very different ways. Let's stand together to read God's Word. Next Sunday, we turn to the book of Acts. 
chapter 9, we'll be looking at the story of the Apostle Paul, and we'll talk about who we are going to be as Christ transforms us, as we connect our lives with each other, as we find ourselves on mission. But today, happy for you, 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand. He hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Saul begins to pursue David. And in chapter 23, when David is running for his life out in the wilderness, verse 15, 1 Samuel 23, 15, while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. You may be seated. Envy sometimes strikes when we least expect it. This is a great moment in the life of Israel. If you remember the chapter before, David has done what nobody else could do. He has defeated Goliath. Saul, who was head and shoulders taller than all the people of Israel, would have been the natural choice to go out and face the Philistine champion, Goliath of Gath. But Saul was afraid to do that. His son, Jonathan, who was second in command, also did not take up that challenge. And so God brought this young man, David, the youngest son of Jesse, who'd already been anointed to be the future king of Israel. Not everybody knew that, but David knew it. And when he saw Goliath challenging the people of Israel, he said, who is this Philistine who defies not just God's people, but God? And he goes out in the name of the Lord and defeats Goliath. You remember that part of the story. And all of Israel is happy. That's why the maidens were singing when Saul and David returned from the battle. 
But the story had already gotten out and Saul wanted to keep David close and had already given him a position of authority. And over a period of time, we see Saul sending David out on various ventures, military adventures, and always David is successful because God's hand is on David's life. And everybody who sees it knows it. But the better David did, the worse Saul felt about it. Not so Jonathan. The better David did, the more victories he won, the more Jonathan felt like this is great for the people of God. In fact, if David wins, the people of God win and I win. And so Jonathan befriends David. You see it in chapter 18. He says, look, here's my here's my cloak. Here's my tunic. Here's my bow. Here's my belt. Here's 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 my armor. Everything you can have everything of mine. It's as if he's saying you can take my place. I'm the heir apparent to the throne, but I'd like to see you become king. Now, who acts that way? Now, a thousand years later, Jesus would say, um, greater greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. John chapter 15, verse 13. But this is a thousand years before that, and Jonathan already exemplifies that Christ-like spirit of love that, that rejoices in the victories of another person. He... He doesn't envy David as his father does. Instead, he extends friendship to him and encourages him. And I wonder now, 2,000 years after Christ said, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. And after Jesus showed us how to do that, who lives this way? Why is it that when others are happy, we can't seem to be happy for them? And why is it that when others are having trouble, something inside us seems to say, I'm glad that's not me. Why are we the way we are? My only answer to that is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God is not complete in our lives. If you and I are still competing with other people, especially if we're competing with unbelievers for the positions of prosperity and wealth and position in this world, it's going to be really, really, really hard for us to tell them about the difference that Christ can make in their lives If our main interest in life is beating them at something, we can either envy people the way that Saul did, or we can encourage people the way that Jonathan did, but I'm pretty sure we can't do both. And if we envy people, we won't encourage them. And listen, if we encourage them, we won't envy them. Can I show you in the Word of God how God wants us to live? First, look at this sin of envy. And can I just say to you that when we envy other people, We think it diminishes them. It certainly diminishes our relationship with them. It diminishes us. And if we're not careful, it will diminish our relationship with God. Because envy is rooted in in an ingratitude that says, whatever God does for them, He should have done for me. Whatever God has done for me is not enough. That's where envy comes from. Because we know that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So if somebody has something good... It's not just that they went out and got it. It's that God gave them the opportunity. And we understand the sovereignty of God in that light. And we know that God is the one who gives gifts. So if we want something somebody else has, our issue is really not with them. Our issue is with God. And we somehow are blinded so that we can't see the good things that God has done for us. So, so Saul, I mean, they win the battle. He's the king. Things are going well. But in the back of his mind, he's always looking for somebody who is a usurper to his throne. Now, he probably doesn't know, as we understand it, the whole story that David will eventually become king. 
But when he sees what David is doing, he recognizes God must be doing this in his life. And so he recognizes in his own life that that he has chosen not to walk with God and he doesn't have God's blessing on his life. And he can't even see the good things that God has done for him. Do you ever find yourself in that position? Peggy Noonan has written a book called uh, John Paul the Great. And in that book, she tells about interviewing in midtown Manhattan, in one of the high rises in the, uh, in the halls and offices of power, financial power in our country. She interviewed a CEO of a Fortune 100 company, one of the great companies in our country. And she was interviewing this man and he reached over and picked up some folders off his desk And he was turning to the back and she said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm looking to see these are the annual reports of all of our competitors. She said, what are you doing? She said, he said, I'm looking to see what the perks and benefits of the CEOs of those companies were. This one got an executive jet. This one got access to a helicopter and and a helicopter pad on the building. This one got a seven figure bonus. He said, we all do this. We all want to know what the other people got, not only in midtown Manhattan, but I'm guessing in Houston also, in schools, in, in neighborhoods, in offices. We get caught up in the competition, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the gerbils, as somebody said, because we got to run really fast to keep up with what everybody else is doing. And along the way, we may miss. This is what Peggy Noonan said. She said, I wondered as I looked at this man, if he understood that he led the company that created the jobs that created the financial possibilities, that empowered families so that we could have civilization. She said, he was in the civilization creation business. But all he could think about was what kind of jet the other person got as a, as a perk. It's interesting, isn't it? Can we be happy that other people are happy. I contrast that with companies right now in our city, in our country that are purposely choosing to take what God has done for them and to share with the last, the lost, uh, and the least in our culture who care about giving things away. It doesn't have to be that way. When Christ-led leaders choose to rejoice in the blessings that God has given, they realize God has given us this for a reason, to make a difference in our world. Very different from the person Peggy Noonan was talking about. It it diminishes our understanding of what God has done for us. It it tends to harm the other person as well, but it really harms us. Philip Yancey tells about um, the seagulls and and these beautiful birds, and he has an interesting uh, piece about the beauty of seagulls and why we love to watch them. But he said, if there is food involved, seagulls... Um, change from these beautiful creatures that float in the beside the sea. They become very vicious when there's food involved. All bets are off. They, they will attack each other for one little morsel of food. And he said that scientists have tied a single ribbon, a red ribbon around the leg of a seagull, and that when the other seagulls see that, they will begin to peck at that and sometimes will actually kill the other bird because that bird has something that they don't have we are not as different from seagulls as i wish we were the minute we see somebody else doing well aren't we tempted we don't have to succumb to this but we are tempted to say well i wish that were me or i wish i were doing well and and the worst part about it is it begins to affect the way we relate to god do you see it's all it's there in, in chapter 18 where it says first he's he's jealous and he's He's angry there in verse 8. And in verse 9, he keeps a jealous eye on David. Verses 
uh, 11, uh, 10 and 11, he tries to kill David. And then in verse 12, we see what the real problem is. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. It bothered him because he knew that God was blessing David. And he remembered when God had chosen him to be king and how he had walked with the Lord for a little while and then had made rash choices that led him down the road where he was at this point, on the verge of mental illness. He, he, he tries so hard to destroy David. He chases him all over the country. But all the while, you get the sense that Saul is not just angry at David. Saul is mad at God, that God would choose to bless this shepherd boy from Bethlehem. We can get caught up in that sometimes, can't we? You remember the movie Amadeus years ago? It won Academy Awards back in the, the mid-80s. It was a marvelous uh, retelling, not a, an actual factual retelling, I might add, of the story of Mozart. And the, the primary actor, played by F. Murray Abraham, who won the Academy Award that year, he played the role of the older composer Salieri, who in his youth had made a, a commitment to God. He said, uh, oh, oh God, if you will make me a great composer, I'll give you my chastity, my industry and my humility. And he began to work hard and he rose through the ranks of musicians, but all the while never felt as though he were really brilliant. Meanwhile, Mozart comes on the scene, three years old, blindfolded, playing the piano in front of kings and emperors and composing music before he's even a teenager, great operas and beautiful works of art. And all, the, all of Europe is, is, is looking at Mozart and talking about what a great composer he is. And Salieri takes interest and says, well, he must be a great and godly person. But when he meets Mozart, he discovers that Mozart is not committed, alas, to chastity. He is not committed to humility. He's very industrious, but he is not a very good person. And it drives Salieri crazy, literally, that God would bless somebody with that kind of gift when that person doesn't care about God. And you and I, I read it in Psalm 73 this week, you and I can get caught up in that and begin to envy the wicked. And Psalm 73, on Monday of this past week, I was reading in the Psalms, and Psalm 73 says that I almost lost my step I almost lost my footing because I envied the arrogant and the wicked. And listen to what the psalmist says. It bothers him that the wicked don't seem to have any struggles. You know anybody like that? They're not particularly good people. They're not Christians. They're not followers of Christ. And everything they touch turns to gold. And you look at them and, you, and, and the psalmist says they don't have any struggles with their health. They're physically strong. They're healthy. Everything goes well for them. And he says, I came to the point where I was so bitter. I was like a senseless Brute, like a seagull, it just bothered me that the wicked were successful. The psalmist is honest. The psalmist begins to pray his envy and to say, and you see it in the story of Salieri, you discover, and he, he finally admits it when he's in the insane asylum after he has poisoned Mozart. And that's not a true story, by the way. But after he's done that in the movie, and he says, I wasn't just mad at Mozart. I was mad at God. Can I just say something today? I just want to be honest. We're friends. I can just tell you. If you're envying somebody, you don't have a problem with that person. You have a problem with God. And I invite you to turn from envy, which would not only diminish your relationship with that person, diminish your relationship with God. But let me tell you, envy has the power. That's why I call it a deadly sin. It's a terrible way to die. It will destroy you. It destroyed Salieri in that movie. It will destroy us if we let it. But as an alternative, can I show you Jonathan's story? It doesn't have to be that way, does it? 
Jonathan, who chooses to rejoice? What if you and I rejoiced in the successes of others? What if we saw other people being blessed by God and said, thank you, God, for blessing them. And by the way, you extended friendship like Jonathan did and you encouraged that other person. I believe it would not only make a difference in that person's life, but believe me when I say it would make a difference in our lives. Jonathan, chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. What else could he have given? What else could he have given to David? He gives his, his coat, his tunic, he, the shirt off his back. He gives everything he has. He gives him his weapons. And he says, you're the king. In effect, he says, you can have my place. Later, his dad, in chapter 20, verse 31, is wondering why David is not eating at the table because he's invited David to eat at his table. And he really doesn't want David at his table. He's sort of under that theory. You've heard that theory, keep your enemies close, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. He's got David at his table, but David doesn't show up at the table. And he says, where is he? And Jonathan says, oh, he's visiting with his family. And Saul gets angry at Jonathan and says, don't you know, as long as that son of Jesse, he can't even call him by name anymore, which would be a sign, by the way, that you don't like somebody if you don't even call him by name. And he says, that son of Jesse, as long as he lives, your future throne will never be secure. And then Jonathan goes out and finds David in the desert. By the way, people who seem to have everything going for them. I mean, David, he's so successful. He's a musician. Uh, he's a great warrior. He's got all, you know, he, he writes psalms. He loves God. He's going to be the king someday. But I just want you to notice in chapter 23, verse 15, he's in the desert. And some of the people you and I admire the most, if we knew the struggles in their life would understand it's not all perfect. It's not all good. David's out there running for his life. He's living in the wilderness. It's not uh, so much of a blessing at this moment in his life to be sort of running for his life from Saul, this insane king. But out there, I want you to hear what the Hebrew says. It says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Now, the word hand is very important here. He will not deliver you into Saul's hands. Saul will not lay a hand on you. Saul will never get the upper hand on you. Why? Because God's hand is with you and he strengthens David's hand in God. This is what we can do. When we see somebody blessed by God, we can bless God and we can bless them. We can extend friendship to them. We can encourage them. I read this week a number, you know, preachers are, are sort of the worst at this, you know, sort of competition, you know, always competing with somebody else. And some of the great preachers, I just read their confessions this week. Andrew Bonar said, you know, the amazing thing to me after 20 years of ministry is not how much God blesses other people more than me, but that he uses me at all. Now, if we ever get beyond that, if you and I ever begin to feel entitled and say, well, of course God blesses me because I've done all of this for him, we're in a very dangerous place. But if you and I can come back in humility and say, the real miracle is that God uses me. And if God can use somebody like me, he can use anybody. If we can get to that place in honesty and integrity, then God can use us. God uses whom he chooses he uses whom he chooses, and we have to bless him in that. F.B. Meyer was a great preacher up in Northfield, Massachusetts. He had great congregations, and then G. Campbell Morgan, the British expositor, came to town. It emptied Meyer's church. Everybody went to hear Morgan. And in the middle of that, he said, the only way I could deal with that every day was to pray for G. Campbell Morgan. He said, I pray for him a lot. We can do that. We can celebrate the successes of others. I was jogging on the bayou some years ago, listening to a sermon on the radio from a preacher here in Houston, and it was so incredibly good. I just had to write him a letter and say, good job. Wow, what a great sermon you preached. 
He sent me a book. He's been my best friend ever since. It's amazing. Every time I see him, he's just like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. He's such an encourager to me. And it's just a sign of grace. There's no reason why he should pay any attention to me at all. And yet, he's become a friend to me. I have friends all around this area. Some Baptists, some Methodists, some Presbyterians, some Episcopal who love the Lord, who are leading their congregation. Can I just say, when there's a Great Commission Christian doing the work of God, if they win, we win. When they do well, we're doing well. When God uses them powerfully, a couple of those guys have come and sat on the back row in our 8 o'clock service this summer. In their sabbatical, they've come and just sat and been a part of our worship services. And I got a letter from one of those guys this week from Dave Peterson. And it was the most encouraging word I have heard in such a long time. Because a guy who preaches like him to compliment me in any way is an amazing thing. Because he is an amazing preacher. And I celebrate the way that God is working in the lives of other people. And you know what that does? When we celebrate the successes of others, it liberates us from worrying about them and causes us just to give thanks to the God who amazingly chooses to use us in any way at all. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life. In Jonathan's case, his kingdom For another. Can you and I do that? If somebody's close to God, what can we say about that? James chapter 4, verse 8 draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. You want to be close to God? God wants to be close to you. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and watch what He does in your life. And here is the thing when you and I begin to encourage other people, the blessing is all ours. We are the ones who are ultimately encouraged by the way that God works in the lives of other people. When they win, we win because we are in this together. Like those swimmers this week in that first relay that Michael Phelps, I think he won his second gold medal as part of a relay team and all day long. I mean, I got, I got sick of hearing it. You know, the French are going to win. The Americans, the best we can do is come in second. You know, Rowdy Gaines. I mean, if you can't trust Rowdy Gaines, the, the analyst, who can you trust? I've added up the scores. There's no way we can win this. I had just resigned myself to that. And you know, and, and then, and then sure enough, they get in the pool and Michael Phelps does good, but, but it comes to the end and it's Alain Bernard, the, the fastest swimmer in the world. He later proved it with a gold medal. Uh, in the in the 100 meter, and uh, he's swimming, and he's got a lead on our guy, and all we've got is Jason Lezak, and I've never heard of him, and I don't know how good he is, and he's out there swimming, and I just think, oh wow, we're going to get the silver medal. I hope we get the silver medal, and sure enough, when they make the turn, it looked like Alan Bernard was swimming. It looked like he was swimming in molasses, didn't it? And, and here was our guy just getting closer and closer. Before I knew it, I was standing up and then my kids were standing up. Melanie was standing up. We're all shouting at the TV. And you know, the other swimmers who were on his team, Michael Phelps is there and they're cheering him on. And I mean, somehow he gets wings. And Jason Lezak swims from behind. If you're French, I'm sorry, but he wins the race. And when he won, didn't you feel like we won? I mean, you know, and and everybody was asking afterward, how did he swim? He didn't swim that fast in the individual final. How did he swim that fast? And the answer is, it wasn't just him swimming. I mean, his teammates were with him in the pool, weren't they? I mean, they were there just cheering and and he was carried on the wings of encouragement, wasn't he? And and they were encouraging him and we were encouraging him and, and he won and they won and we won. And it was a great moment. And as I looked at that, I thought, encouragement will carry you Places you never thought you would ever go. And it's a great moment when anybody in the kingdom of God is blessed by God. And what if you and I became those encouragers 
who had the chance to put the wind beneath their wings, so to speak, to say, God carry you higher. I, re- I remember driving past churches in other cities where I've served and praying for the pastors of those churches that God would bless them, that God would use them to reach our community, that our city might be one to Christ. Because if the kingdom of God grows, we all grow. But if we diminish somebody else with envy, we only diminish ourselves. And God, may I say, has more than that in His plan for you and for me. And we rejoice in the goodness of God. And we watch what God does. And we celebrate His goodness in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your goodness to us. Of Your goodness we have tasted and we have seen that You are good. And we rejoice, Lord, and we pray today that You would help us to receive Your goodness to us without regretting what you were doing in the life of somebody else. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.